And for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all the riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with pervasive, excuse me, persuasive words, for though I am not absent, for though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in the spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. And beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the traditions of man, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. Now, this morning, we need to understand that the book of Colossians was written mainly to combat a heresy that was circulating in the city and the surrounding area. And Paul's strategy in combating this heresy of false teaching was not necessarily to disprove it, but rather his main focus was to illuminate the deity of Christ, of who he is. He goes on the offensive rather than on the defensive. You see, the false teaching was promoting the idea that Christ was truly not supreme over all things, that there were some rulers or powers or activities, we might say, that Christ was not in control of. And so to combat that, Paul pens one of the most powerful sections on the deity of Christ. And if you flip back to chapter 1, I'm going to read it, but you can follow along. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, it says this. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body of the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Now, this section here, chapter 1, verses 15 to 20, is what we know as an early Christian hymn. It's a section that was often memorized, not necessarily sung as we think hymns are, because of what it taught about the deity of Christ. And there are at least four other hymns. Some scholars might say more Bible passages will say in the New Testament. You see, the early church didn't have copies you know, like you and I do in our hands right now or at our shelves at home, sometimes 5, 10, 15, 20 copies at home. They had to memorize Scripture. And memorizing such a doctrinally rich, theologically rich section like Colossians 1 was done so they knew what they believed about Jesus. You know, we can open up our Bible and we can read about the deity of Christ, about what he's done for us, about the atonement, about redemption, about reconciliation. But it wasn't so easy for these first century believers. Now, as you move to chapter 2 of Colossians, where our text takes us for this morning, Paul fights against another tenet of this false teaching. 
You see, not only was this false teaching attacking the fact that Christ was supreme, but it was also attacking the sufficiency of Christ, that Christ is enough. And this heresy was claiming that the Colossian Christians were missing something, that there was some deeper knowledge that they were not aware of, that Christ was just the tip of the iceberg, maybe is what these false teachers might say. And to uncover the rest of the iceberg, you need to dig deeper down into the waters. That's what they might say. That's where the deeper truths of this life are, the ones more significant and the ones more altering than Christ himself, they would often claim. Now we look at that and say, that's ridiculous. But so in order to combat this heretical teaching, Paul teaches us that this simple, simple thought, that Christ is sufficient. You know, it's all about Christ it's always gonna be about all about him. The Bible begins and ends with Christ. You find Christ on every page of all the Bible. But Paul warns the Colossians, he says this in verse four of chapter two as we start into that text. Now I say this, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. Then you move down to verse eight. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Because, as verse 9 says, for in him, in Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now this means that the power and the majesty of the Godhead is wrapped up in the physical and human person of Christ. You know, everything we need to know about God our Father is given to us in the person of the Son. And it's through the death of Christ on the cross that we who believe him are forever connected to him. Therefore, our title today says we are complete in him. There's nothing more you can add to it. The highest and most important thing you can ever attain to in this life is a relationship with Jesus Christ, and that's it. There's nothing more, there's nothing greater. There's nothing out there that it's better. Don't spend your life looking for it because you're not gonna find it. It's not gonna be there anywhere. And that's the simplicity of Jesus because when Jesus offers salvation, he doesn't offer a second class salvation. His salvation is first class. And you can spend your entire life looking for someone or something else that might bring you more life, but you're gonna waste your time in the process. Because everything we need in this life and the life to come is all wrapped up in that person of Christ. He is our identity. He is the one that we are forever associated with. Do you realize that when Christ died on the cross in his human form, he full well knew that he would have to keep that form for the rest of eternity? I want you to think about that for a moment. That when Christ rose again, he did so as a human, physical person. That when he returns at the second coming, he's going to come back as a human, physical person. When we spend eternity with Christ, he's going to be in a human, physical form. And so Christ knew that the moment he robed himself in flesh at the incarnation, when he became a man, that there was no going back. There wasn't. He wanted to be forever associated with us. Yes, us. <laughs> a people who are perpetually sinful perpetually unfaithful and perpetually disloyal every chance we get. You know, all the way back to the book of Genesis, when God put Adam and Eve into the garden, he gave them everything they could possibly need 
to have a life, a long, long, fulfilling life. But they still decided that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would offer them something more, something missing, something deeper, something that God had not told them about life, something secret, you might say. By their first act of sin, they were saying to God, I'm sorry, you're just not enough. You know, last week, um, pastor spent some time in Ecclesiastes. And if you were here, you remember that sermon. And he spent about, I guess, 10 minutes in Ecclesiastes reading some chapters and some verses in Ecclesiastes. And he demonstrated that Solomon had spent much of his life seeking after the temporal things. That Solomon wasted his life. Solomon tried everything under the sun. And at the end of his life, he came to one simple conclusion. That life, apart from Christ, is, is vain. It's meaningless. It's not life at all. Satisfaction and contentment in this life only come in a relationship with Christ. Now, listen, if the wisest man ever to walk the face of the earth cannot find satisfaction in the temporal things of life, what makes you think that you're going to find satisfaction in them? Now, I would call Solomon the wisest fool, if I can use that acronym, because he was foolish. He knew better. He wasted much of his life in that pursuit. The Colossian Christians were facing the same dilemma by this heresy that was circulating. It was teaching that Christ is not sufficient and there is more to life than just Christ. You know, I stand here with Jesus. I stand here with Paul. I stand here with all the apostles to say that Christ is enough. He is exactly what we need. It isn't complicated. It isn't complex. It's rather simple. That's why our series of messages is, is simply Jesus. You may say, my life is a train wreck. I don't even know where I'm going to start to get on the right, back on the right path. Jesus knows the way. You might say, I've lost my children. I don't even know if they're going to come back to the faith. Well, Jesus has a plan. You might say, I am so beset and trapped and addicted to this world that I don't know how to fight it. Friends, Jesus has a strategy. You know, you may say, my family is so dysfunctional that I don't know where to start. Jesus has a plan. And I would also say, welcome to the club. <laughs> because every family is dysfunctional. You know, many of us here know that Jesus is sufficient in our head, in our thinking, in our mind. We know that. We get it. But that doesn't always translate into our actions. The longest distance sometimes to travel is the 18 inches between your head and your heart. And while it may be a short way to travel, it's often a hard road to travel. If you struggle every day to keep Jesus first in your life, then guess what? You're not alone. If you struggle every day to focus on the eternal rather than the temporal, guess what? You're not alone. And the good news is that Paul gives us an excellent paradigm or a plan or a strategy of what we can do to ensure that we are seeking first the kingdom of God. That in our thinking as well as in our actions, we are showing others that Christ is sufficient. And so in verses 6 and 7, Paul gives us a strategy of sorts. And Paul's strategy is a good offense rather than a good defense. I'm sorry, coaches, those of you who think that a good defense is better than a good offense, you can take up your complaints with Paul because Paul says a good offense is better than a good defense. So Paul's offensive strategy comes in the form of, of four words or four participles. So I'm going to get grammatical with you today, okay? So four participles, and they actually come from the text here in Colossians chapter 2. Look at verses 6 and 7. Look at what it says. 
As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Okay? So the first participle is the word rooted. Okay? That's the first participle. Having been firmly rooted as a tree, Paul says. You see, the Colossians had been firmly planted in the faith in the past. They were believers. And so Paul is speaking about their conversion experience, and he does with the imagery of a tree. You know, we are to be rooted in Christ. Christ is the only way to heaven. He's the only one who can provide salvation. So when we accept him as our Savior, we root our lives in him and his sacrifice on our behalf. We use the word rooted, or excuse me, when we use the word rooted, we naturally think, at least I do, of a tree or of a plant, right? The roots, right? The root structure. Um, now, recently over Christmas break, uh, my family, we were able to have a destination Christmas in, in Gatlinburg. So something that we've always wanted to do, have a destination Christmas. Maybe next time we'll have a destination Christmas on some tropical island somewhere. <laughs> but nonetheless, it was in Gatlinburg. And in my family, we've been to Gatlinburg many times um, over the course of probably five, six times maybe. Um, uh, or, or so. And so we didn't, this time, as going as a destination experience, we didn't know that it was going to snow. <laughs> we didn't know that we were going to get stuck on a mountain for a couple days in the snow. But that's okay. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. And one of the things that we like to do when we go to Gatlinburg is I like to go for hikes in the park. I mean, there you are at the foothills of the Smoky Mountains. I mean, what a gorgeous place to go out and take a walk and and and, and see what God has created. Well, this time was different because there was snow on the ground, which made it a little bit more tricky as the, as the hike would go. You had to be careful. I had to constantly watch my kids and my wife so they weren't slipping and falling. And, um, and so it was a little more dangerous, but man, it was so beautiful to see everything covered in snow. Now, later on in the week, we went for another hike. And this hike, um, we specifically went on this hike because it took us up to a tree grove this trail did. It was about three and a half miles one direction, three and a half miles back. The way there is always so short, isn't it? It's the way back that's always so long, right? It was about three and a half miles to get there. And it took us up to this tree grove where it was said that the oldest tree in the park was said to be rooted in that tree grove. It wasn't marked, uh, but we found it. And so uh, in order to commemorate the moment that I found it, I took a picture. And they're going to show that picture for you. I took a picture here, okay? And this is me. I'm not naturally a tree hugger. You know that joke was coming, right? But I took a picture of it to see. And you can see my arms are wrapped around it. Um, you can't really see the height of it because we couldn't get back far enough to take a picture unless we're gonna fall over the ravine and into another cliff. So it was kind of hard to get a, a picture back. But, but here I am hugging the tree. And you know, I'm... I'm not a little guy, and I'm not a huge guy, but, you know, I'm kind of middle-sized, I guess you'd say, but those are my arms wrapping, and I can't even get barely halfway around it. I mean, and I went around it like four times to try to measure about 24, 25 feet wide. 25 feet wide. Huge. It was about, I think, 120, 130 feet tall. It was just this massive tree, and you didn't see it at first as we were going through this grove, because there were a lot of trees that had been knocked down, a lot of trees that had been cut off. There was actually one tree before we got there that had been cut off, 
so we could get through the path. And I just sat there for a minute as they were walking ahead and I started counting all the rings because it was right there, right in front of me, like level to my stomach and I just started counting. And I got about two thirds of the way through and I was already past 100. And I was like, that is an old tree. And that was not even this one, that was the one that was already, had fallen. And so we found our way and, and I knew this was a tree. And so we went beside, we took some pictures. I gave the tree a big hug. I was glad to see it. But what I thought after that was like, man, this tree, um, must have had the deepest root structure ever imagined. I mean, this tree has got to go deep into the mountain. Of course, as a woodworker, woodworker, I also thought it'd be a shame if this tree fell and nobody knew about it because, man, you could make some nice furniture, some nice, nice tables, some nice countertops out of a tree that big and that old. People will pay a premium price for stuff like that. But as I was there, I immediately thought these tree roots grow deep into the mountain. And the imagery of the tree is what piqued my interest about trees in scripture. And I thought, you know what? The Bible begins with a tree, the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It ends with a tree in the New Jerusalem, the tree of life. Besides the fact that Jesus died on a tree, didn't he? Trees are mentioned in the Bible more than any other living thing. Other than God and people, trees are next in line. And every major Bible character has a tree associated with it. I don't have time to talk about each one. Before the Bible came into the book form that we have it today, they were attached to scrolls. And the handles of these scrolls were called in Hebrew, the tree of life. Interesting, isn't it? Now, I have another picture, and they can pull that one up real quick. In South Africa, there's a wild fig tree that was recorded to have a root structure of more than 400 feet deep. 400 feet deep. That's more than a football field length deep of a root structure. Now that's not the one, but that's a similar fig tree in Africa. And you can see how massive the base of that tree is and how far down the root structure must go. In fact, I think we all have probably come to fear the destruction of trees, (laughs) haven't we? Because especially when they're covered with ice, right? Especially when they're leaning over and you just know they're gonna fall. By the way, did you realize that the strength of a tree is not in its taproot or its main vertical root? Its strength really lies in its horizontal roots, so much so that oftentimes trees' outward structure extends well beyond its outermost branches. So what we're saying is a tree is more wide in its root structure than it is deep because the strength of a tree is in the network of roots. You can take down the picture. The point of Paul's imagery is that when we place our faith in Christ, we root our lives in him. And that means that he is all the sources. He has all the things we need to grow and to thrive in this life. We have that root structure in Christ. Now, this participle rooted that we're looking at, this term, is what we call a perfect passive participle. So let me add a few other things. The perfect tense means a past action. It means conversion in the past. Passive means, guess what? We're not the one that did anything. Christ rooted in him, in Christ. Christ is the one who performed the action. You see, the tense and even the voice of the participle is even teaching us that salvation is only accomplished through Christ. Don't be fooled by thinking that you can root your life into something better because there isn't anything better. It's 
in Christ. So Paul says that you are rooted in Christ. Now the second participle, he says, you need to be built up in Christ. Well, what does built up mean? Well, the idea here is that we are built up as a building, right? Uh, And since we are talking about tense and voice, this participle is also a present passive participle. The present tense, a continuous action, okay? Constantly in our life, we're being built up. We are building our lives on that foundation of Christ. It's a constant process. But it's also passive, which means that, yes, we do some of the work, but Christ is mainly the one who does it, okay? This participle reminds us that building our lives is not a swift accomplishment. It's not a one-time process. It's a lifelong process. We're responsible to use the nourishment that we get from the scriptures and the nourishment we get from following what God's word tells us, obeying his commands. But God is the one that produces the growth. Christ is the one that produces the growth. The imagery here is of building. You know, another frequent motif in scriptures When we build our lives on the foundation of Christ, we build it strongly. However, be warned, because as Paul says in other places in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, you can build your life with the wrong materials. He says you can build your structure with the wrong kinds of materials. When Paul was writing in 1 Corinthians 3, he cautions them to build their lives with materials that are going to last through eternity. He says don't build them with wood, hay, and stubble. Those are things that the world offers. Build them with gold, silver, and precious stones, the things that life in Christ will offer. Because wood, hay, and stubble, guess what? They're gonna be burned up in the time of judgment. They are temporal, they will not last. But gold, silver, and precious stones, they will last through the fire. So there's this idea that we are to be built up. It's an ongoing action. It begins after our salvation, after we're rooted in Christ. Now we begin to build our lives in him or on him. Just like a tree, when it takes roots, then it starts growing in Christ. Then it starts growing and it starts to produce things. Likely it's supposed to produce fruit, right? But the structure, it begins to grow. It begins to build a foundation. And you're not going to find a more secure foundation in this life than Christ. And you can build your tree as high as you want. And guess what? That root structure, because it's rooted in Christ, is never going to fail. It's always going to stay strong. So he says, be rooted in him, but also be built up in him. And then the third participle here is to be established. Like the participle being built up, the participle here, established, is also a present passive participle, a continuous action. Present means a continuous action. So in our growing process, we're to become increasingly more stable, right? When a tree grows, When it first starts to grow, sometimes we have to do what? We have to support the tree, don't we? Because it wants to go every little way. I'm so proud of the one tree that I have in my front yard. It's a, I think it's a crepe myrtle. And I planted it like three years ago with just a little tiny sliver of a tree. And I have been kind of taking care of it, but the last couple of years I've kind of just left it, left my hands off of it. And the minute I stop touching the tree, it starts, to, it starts to grow very well. But for a while there, I had a little cage around it, you know, to protect it from the deer who want to rub up against the side of it and all the rabbits and stuff that want to try to rub their fur up against it and stuff. Uh, but you have a support structure when you're growing like that. And so part of the Christian life part of growing in Christ, part of keeping your focus on him as your source is is that sometimes 
you can waver a little bit. Sometimes you can move back and forth. And, and a tree is a great example because how many times we see pictures of hurricanes on the Weather Channel and the palm trees are just, I mean, they're just way over. And you say, how in the world do those things not fall over? I mean, when's the last time you saw a palm tree uprooted? I haven't seen very many. I lived in Florida for seven years, and I didn't see very many uproot. I'm sure there are, but most of the time you don't. They just, I mean, they just go over, and eventually they just all come back because they're so used to it. They're so um, used to that environment. And, and so he says that our growing process is to become increasingly stable, but the participle is also passive because there's a place or a realm in which the growing place has to take place. And he says it here. He says growing in, established in the faith. In the faith. The faith is, is the realm where our growing takes place. Now, for Paul, and in the context of the Colossians, the faith would have been the right doctrine about Jesus, okay? The false teaching that was circulating was tempting Colossians to follow another faith, follow something else, not the one that Paul had taught them. So, for us today, we're in the constant process of being established in our faith as we study God's word, as we come to church, as we hear it preached, as it's expounded, as we attend groups, as we dig into the study of it. We're constantly in that process of establishing ourselves. And it takes time to establish. It takes time for a tree to establish itself, doesn't it? It takes time. It can take 30, 40, 50 years for a tree to grow to be mature. It takes a lifetime for it to be established. But also notice the small qualifier there. It says, what kind of faith? He says, the faith that you were taught. Look at what it says. Established in the faith as you have been taught. Growth in the faith doesn't discard the simple truths of Christ for more experienced or more mature ones. You never grow beyond the simple things. Do you know that? You never grow so far advanced that you never have to use the restroom. It's a simple thing, right? You never grow far beyond, unless you die, but you never grow far beyond that, do you know it's the simple things in life. You never grow far beyond certain things like that. And that's what he's saying here, the faith that you were once taught. It's that simple growing process. We all wanna kind of get past the simple things and get to more, maybe the more mature things, the more rich doctrinally things, but growth comes as we practice over and over and over again. You know the ones that are most successful is the ones that do the simple things over and over and over and over and over again. If you've been in the Word and in your study of Scriptures for the last 50 years every day, guess what? You've been established, if not have already been there, but you're constantly growing. So he says, be rooted in him, be built up in him, be established in him. And then he uses another participle here, and it's the word abounding or abounding in it with thanksgiving. Now, this is a different participle because it's a present active one. Present, again, continuous action. But active meaning that, guess what? We are the ones that have to be doing this. We are the ones who should be overflowing with thankfulness. We are the ones you know, thankfulness is a good test of our spiritual condition because a person who is thankful, excuse me, a person who is not thankful is a person who has not learned how to focus on the greatness of God. You know, the more that you and I learn about the marvelous plan of salvation, the forethought, the design of that salvation occurring before the foundations of the world, the more we ought to bow the knee in gratitude every single day that we have breath in our being, every single day. Thanksgiving is a good test 
for us? Are we constantly being grateful? Are we thankful for what Christ has done? You know, we say we are in our head, but a lot of times in our actions it doesn't match up. And sometimes it takes work. Sometimes we have to just be thankful and eventually it will come out in our actions. Now, if we put these four participles together like an equation, okay, and if we put them together into our lives and practice them, then we come away with this vital character trait that we all so desperately need, and it's called discernment. And discernment, especially in the chaos of the world in which we live in, can be extremely difficult. Man, it can be extremely frustrating, isn't it? I mean, how many of us have shared something on social media later on only to know, oh, that wasn't the truth, or you were misled? I mean, it's so hard and it's so difficult. You know, you, you go on the, uh, you log on to your, um, on your computer, your device, and, and you pull up Google and you search for something. Um, you know, there can be tons of different ways. You know, you might pull it, pull it up and say, how do I, you know, reframe my garage? I don't know. And you might have 25 different ways to do it. You're like, well, which one do I choose? It's so hard. With the plethora of information we have, it makes discernment so much more difficult. It's been said that a person living in the 1880s, the information they acquired their entire lifetime is what we acquire with one edition of the New York Times, the newspaper. Okay, We get that every single day. So discerning through all of that gunk becomes so, so difficult and so, so frustrating. But if we're to put these participles into practice, then it says so in verse 8, then we will be on guard, verse 8 of chapter 2, against anyone who wants to cheat us through philosophy and empty deceit. It says, beware lest anyone cheats you. What is cheat? Cheat means to, just to completely manipulate someone, to carry them away as plunder, we might say. Other translations use the word to take captive. A person who has been captured is the subject to the will of his or her captor. Paul warns us, says, beware, watch carefully, watch intently. If our guard is not up, if we're not watching carefully, then we can be easily taken captive at a moment's notice by, he says, philosophy and empty deceit. Now these two words, philosophy and empty deceit, they go together. Empty deceit characterizes philosophy he's talking about, okay? Philosophy, which is a one-time word usage here. It's a contrast between human wisdom and divine wisdom. So we might say that human wisdom, guess what, is empty and deceptive. While human wisdom and ingenuity has come a long way, that wisdom is flawed and misplaced. You know, if you watched the news last week, you might know that the newest rover landed on Mars, didn't it? I don't know how far we are away from Mars. I think 22 million or so miles away. It was launched on July 30th of 2020 in the midst of the COVID, um, still in the midst of the COVID crisis. Um, I would make a joke about it wearing a mask, but I won't. And it landed February 18th of 2021, roughly seven months later. And I understand that NASA you know, as a science agency, a space exploration agency. But spending $2 billion on a rover 
and spending almost $3 billion on the total mission is what I would call the epitome of human wisdom. It's empty. It's deceptive. Now, obviously, the scientists, you know, are hoping to discover some kind of primordial bacteria that shows them that there was life on Mars in the past. You know, man's wisdom looks to space to find answers to life mysteries. But we know that God didn't send his one and only son to Mars. <laughs> Might be a song about that or something. If he did, I'd be on the first rocket there. But he didn't. He sent his son to earth with the purpose of redeeming mankind. You see, man's wisdom will always be empty and deceptive because its root structure is built upon man and man's sin nature. I don't want to be connected to a root structure that finds its nourishment from man and his ideas. Do you? No. I want to be connected to a root structure that finds fulfillment in Christ, that's anchored in Christ. Because in Christ, in Christ alone dwells all the fullness of God. In Christ, in Christ alone, God was decisively and exhaustively revealed to us. All we can know or experience about God in this life and in the life to come, likely, is in Christ. God did not waste his time placing his express image into the person of Christ for us to push him aside as less valuable than things of the world. But that's what people do every single day. God does not waste things. He doesn't even waste water. You realize that? He created water on day two of creation. Hopefully I got that right. And you know what? He hasn't created any more water. He's green. He recycles. Same water he created on the day of creation is the same water we use today. He doesn't waste anything. God did not waste placing everything that we need to know about Christ into his son for us just to push him aside and say, you know what? Today, Christ, I'm going to let you have a break. And today, I'm going to do things my own way. You see, Christ is sufficient. Christ is enough. And that's the simplicity of it all. You are complete in Christ. Everything you can possibly need in this life and in the life to come is all wrapped up in the person of Jesus. You know, if you've read portions of the Old Testament before, you know that the Israelites often struggled to find their source of life in God. They often did. Um, they went so far as to say to God, we don't want a divine king. We want a human king. We want to look like the other nations. We want someone who can rule on our, on our behalf. We want a human king to lead us. They thought they knew better than God. And that didn't turn out very well for them, did it? No, no. God also warned the Israelites that when they entered the promised land, not to go start following after other gods, not to fall into worshiping other gods. Don't do it, he said. He warned them so many times. He was essentially saying, why are you going after the other gods? I've given you everything you need. Follow me. I've taken care of all of your needs. Stay with me. Don't go after those other gods. And what did they do? They completely disobeyed, began worshiping other gods, which did irreparable damage to the nation of Israel that they were never able to overcome. They never got over it. They never did. God told them time and time and time and time and time again, I am enough. 
I am enough. And yet time and time and time again, they chose to forsake God. They chose to get rid of him. They chose to say that you are not important. You see, we may know that and in our minds, our thinking, it might be, yes, we realize that Christ is enough, but our actions don't look like it. Our lives don't look like it. If we really thought that Christ was enough, we would act a lot differently. See, your theology affects what you do in life. You guys realize that we have a theology about everything we do in life. It's a mixture sometimes. It's what you've been taught from the word of God. It's what your mama has told you. It's the advice your dad gave you, maybe your grandpa. Maybe you, what you learn on social media. I don't know, maybe the gospel according to Oprah, okay? So it's like a melting pot of things. And when we perform an action, we roll back to that theology and say, okay, how am I supposed to do this action, okay? It's based upon our thinking. But if, if our thinking is so focused and so based on Christ and everything in him, then our actions are going to be completely different. You want wisdom? You want knowledge that has no equal? You want that? Well, it's all found in Christ. Look back up at verses 2 and 3 of this text. And I'm going to read this from a different translation. Yeah, I brought two Bibles up here. I'm going to read Colossians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3 from my NLT. Listen to what it says. I want them to be encouraged and knit together by strong ties of love. I want them to have complete confidence that they understand God's mysterious plan, which is Christ himself. Which is Christ himself. You see, God's magnificent and mysterious and omniscient plan is all wrapped up into the person of Christ. It's all there. It's all in him. It's always all been in him. It always all will be in him. And then it goes on. Listen. In him, verse 3, lie hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In him lie all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. There it is right there in the text, black and white. You want knowledge? You want understanding far beyond your wildest imaginations, guess what? You find it in Christ. It's right there. Circle it, highlight it, star it, underline it, flashing lights on it. Christ is enough. Christ is sufficient. Christ has all the answers. And do not, do not let anyone try to tell you differently. They can tell you differently. That's great. But don't let them fool you with their empty words and the human wisdom that this world has to offer. It's right here. Paul says that in Christ lie all the treasures. All means all, and that's all all means. <laughs> all the treasures. Everything. It's here. It's so simple. But it's so simple that people think, oh, that must not be it. There must be something I'm missing. It can't be so simple. Sometimes when I'm helping people fix something, I forget the simple things. Sometimes when they ask me, well, Jeremy, this is not working, and I say, is it plugged in? You know, the simple things, right? Well, it can't be that easy. And sometimes, oh, 
It's not plugged in. (laughs) Sometimes it's just the simple things. So don't overthink Christ. Yes, there are tons of things about Christ that we probably will never understand with our finite minds on this side of heaven. Yes, I get it. But the simplicity behind it all is that he has everything. It's all available in him. Christ is enough. Christ is sufficient. Christ has all the answers. And don't let anyone else try to convince you otherwise. It's not worth it. You'll waste your life trying to, trying to measure up to it. He has all the answers. But if it's so simple and if it's so easy, then why do we have so much trouble with it? Our sin nature is powerful, isn't it? We struggle every day. Mm. We get up, we start out well, don't we? And something happens, and boy, that sets us off. It besets us. It pushes us off. That sin nature is so, so, so powerful. But you know what? You have a responsibility like I do. Each day as you get up and you set your feet on the ground and you're thankful that you're alive and everything's working properly, then you go to battle. Because you know that when you get up and when you leave, sometimes it's not even the bed. (laughs) You know when you leave that spot, you're going to be fighting a battle. Sin is so strong. It's so persuasive. It can just, in a moment's notice, before you even know what's happened, it can take you off and gone. It's a battle. It's a struggle. But you come back to this passage and you see that Christ is enough. He always has been enough. There's nothing more in this life than him and him alone. You think, wow, there's so many things in life, though. So many neat things to do. So many cool things to do. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, I want to go and visit tropical islands and destination places and all that kind of stuff. That's great. I was supposed to go. I'm, I'm a little bitter about this, but I was supposed to go to Israel in 2020 in March. It was scheduled. You know, everything was, had everything done, ready to go. And then COVID happened and they shut down Israel. And I said, Lord, I'm not happy. You know, and and of all places to go, you'd think that would be the place that would stay open because that's where Jesus was. That's the Holy Land, you know? I mean, that's a good place, Lord. I'm not trying to go to a Hawaii somewhere or some destination vacation. I'm trying to go to see where Jesus walked. That was hard. That was difficult. But understand that everything in this life, quite simple, it's wrapped up in Christ. And if you think otherwise, if you try otherwise, you'll be like Solomon. You'll be the wisest fool. You'll spend your whole life searching for something that's not there. At the end, Solomon says, I've learned, fear God and keep his commandments. He wasted his entire life. I'm thankful at the end that Solomon got the picture, got the message, but he wasted his entire life in the process. Don't waste your life doing that. Spend it in Christ because, listen, any problem you have, The world is going to forsake you. Everybody's going to forsake you. But Christ is not going to forsake you. He's going to be there every single time. And if you don't know Christ as your personal Savior, then don't leave this building 
without putting your faith in him.